Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our fifth episode, congressional correspondent James Arkin talks with Angel Padilla and Sarah Dahl of Indivisible, a group organizing the protests of congressional town hall meetings. Then, Real Clear Education editor Chris Beach talks with Representative Virginia Fox, the new chairwoman of the House Education Committee. First up, James talks with Angel and Sarah about their fight against President Trump's agenda. So I am James Arkin, congressional reporter with Real Clear Politics, and I am here with Angel Padilla and Sarah Dole. They are two members of the leadership team and the board for the Indivisible Group, which was started by former congressional staffers putting together instructions for how people can uh, influence and contact their members of Congress. So thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. So where I wanted to start is if you could both uh, first tell me what you're doing now, but also just give me a, a brief history of your work on Capitol Hill, you know, who you worked for and, and what you did. Uh, yeah, so I, right now I do health policy for a national immigrant rights, immigrant rights organization. Um, I've been doing that for about three years now. Before that, uh, I spent two years in Congressman Gutierrez's office where I also did health policy, and that office was uh, almost 99% probably focused on immigration, so it was a combination of uh, immigration and health care. And I was a speechwriter for Senator Maria Cantwell from Washington and communications director for Congressman Lloyd Doggett from Austin, who has uh, the distinct honor of being one of the first members in Congress to have a Tea Party uh, town hall protest in his district in 2009. So that gave you a, a very early uh, look at what these town halls, the power of what these town halls can do. Yeah, a, a lot of power. Uh, yeah. It really it um, informed my time on the Hill, and I think um, it really is sort of the perspective that, that we as former congressional staffers bring to the Indivisible Project. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit, just for listeners who might not know, uh, you know, what Indivisible is and how both of you, you know, got started in it? So Indivisible was conceived uh, just after the election of President Trump over Thanksgiving in a bar in Austin, actually. Uh, our friends Leah and Ezra were down there and talking like many progressives were at the time about what we could do um, to affect the most change after a very uh, startling election. I think so many of us were shell-shocked. And what we really saw from being in Facebook groups and talking to our friends was a lot of really well-meaning people were giving some very bad advice. So the biggest difference you can make as an American is to sign this petition or uh, everyone should call Paul Ryan. And we knew as former congressional staffers that those things don't matter. Um, you know, they're, they're very much optics. And the truth of it is that your two senators and your one representative are the only people who care about you in Congress. So if we were to focus all our attention there, we could really make a bigger difference. Yeah, and just sort of building up, building on that, um, after the election, I think a lot of people were just, after the reality set in, it, there was a question of how do you respond? Um, and it just sort of was happening naturally where groups were being formed, people were meeting and talking. I remember I got a couple of invitations to group meetings to talk about what had just happened. Um, yeah, and the same thing was happening where you had people who were, you know, liking something on Facebook and that was there, you know, that, that, that was seen by some folks as being supporting an issue or opposing Trump and we, this guide, you know, the hope was to channel a lot of that energy into productive, effective ways of affecting change. So how are the decisions made on what, because, you know, you guys broke the guide up into four parts. Um, I guess first, can you explain the, you know, what those parts were and how you decided what information you thought people needed, both on the history of the Tea Party and, and on what they personally could do to influence their members? Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about the first part. Um, you know, being a Democratic staffer in Congress in 2009 after the historic election of President Obama, um, we had Democratic supermajorities in Congress. And, you know, for we should have been able to get a lot of things done. It was a great time to be a Democrat in Washington. And we saw very quickly, starting that April around tax day and stretching into that summer, very small groups of local activists effectively slowing federal policymaking to a halt. Um, you know, they were able to not only put pressure on Democrats, but put pressure on their own Republican colleagues um, to essentially 
uh, reject any sort of compromise. So from our perspective, if this could work against a very popular president and supermajorities in Congress, it could surely work now against the you know most historically unpopular at that time president-elect in history. Um, and the, the two tactics that we you know saw the Tea Party you know, use and we saw it work were these ideas of local activists on the ground really working to affect change at home and the idea of defensive politics. So understanding that we don't get to set the agenda right now, but the best way that we can protect our agenda is standing up and just saying no and putting pressure on our members of Congress to do the same. Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly right. It's um, through the guide, we wanted to really demystify Congress and show people, you know, what members of Congress actually care about, and that's re-election. They care about re-election, whether they're a, a representative or a senator, they're, they're always thinking about what is gonna happen in the next election cycle. Um, and so understanding that, uh, combined with local activism, um, in the guide we provide folks uh, some of those kind of tactics that they can use to try to make a difference. And um, we lay them out, um, you know, things like town halls, in district office visits, um, coordinated calls, all the things that really get to a member of Congress. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of people were getting advice on like, you know, signing petitions or calling Speaker Ryan and, and offering, you know, criticism or uh, suggestions. Um, was it that or was there was there one sort of overarching misconception about the way activism could work for people who wanted to become involved? Was there something that people just fundamentally misunderstood that that made this guide necessary, you think? Yeah, I think it was it was really that the local activism piece. So that is people thinking that they should spend all of their time calling people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan if they didn't live in Kentucky and Wisconsin. Um, and I think the biggest hurdle to, to get past, and you know, even today it's still a challenge, getting people to really focus on their own members of Congress, even if they're Democrats. That's, that's a, you know, a big thing that we talk about. Um, you know, like the Tea Party put pressure on Republican members to reject compromise. Um, you know, we talk about how important it is to stiffen the spine of our good blue members and make sure that they're standing up at every turn to resist Trump's agenda loudly. Yeah, and one of the biggest, I think, misconceptions um, is, is that people, a lot of people think that you need to come to Washington, D.C. to make a difference, that you need to come here to meet with your member of Congress, and that's not the case. Um, you can do all of this locally in a district office, in a regional office. You can do uh, all those things to get to your member of Congress there without having to travel to D.C. So early on, uh, even before President Trump was inaugurated, um, but then, you know, especially after the inauguration, we've seen this happen you know, both with the Women's March in D.C., um, with the protests at airports, now with the, the town halls and the protests outside of district offices. Um, were you surprised at all, or did you expect that things would move this quickly, that, that so early in the Trump administration and in such a, a visible and energetic way, people would start taking the advice that they got from the guide and, and from other local activists? I think we were hopeful, um, but the reality is we, you know, we put out this guide as a Google document just over two months ago. Um, we thought maybe our moms would read it, but we had no idea that almost overnight it would go viral and, and crash Google Docs. Um, we definitely had no idea that, you know, some 13 million people at this point would visit our website. Um, but what's been most amazing is to see all of these groups really form. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Republicans are now talking about how they think this is, um, how Indivisible is a, a paid movement, a well-funded movement, but the reality is that, um, you know, it's, be, it's really being run by new activists on the ground. The, the most common thing that we're hearing from folks is, um, you know, until Indivisible, I had never called my member of Congress. I had never attended a town hall. We heard a story about uh, a man in Ohio who was bowling with his family and there was a line and the family behind him was using the time to call their members of Congress. Um, I think this is something that's new, something that we haven't seen before. Um, and I'd say we were definitely surprised. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was definitely surprised at the way that this guy took off. Um, you know, when, when it got put on the website, I didn't think I was gonna hear about it for a few days. Um, uh, like, like Sarah said, maybe my parents would read it, maybe my friends would read it. Um, 
but definitely surprised at the trajectory of the guide and how, how people have been using it. What's not surprising is um, the wave of you know, activism, the, the, the way that groups have mobilized, because when we think about the things that are under threat, it's, I think it's a natural reaction. People wanna, want to save our democracy, want to protect our communities, want to protect vulnerable communities and vulnerable populations, so that's not surprising. When we're talking about protecting you know, civil rights, voting rights, immigrants, um, those kinds of things, it's not surprising that this is the kind of reaction that we've gotten. And I think, you know, it, as much as this movement and, and people have said this, what they're seeing out at these town halls and at district offices is somewhat unpre unprecedented. I think that's only fair because so are the threats that our country is facing. So what do you think is, um, I mean, there two things stand out to me in terms of what we've seen early on. The first being, you know, some of these very raucous town halls, um, you know, with a lot of people showing up and voicing their opposition. And the other is just the, the massive flood of phone calls um, that we saw members of, of the House and, and Senate get, I mean, even, you know, members of the House getting flooded with phone calls about uh, cabinet appoint, uh, cabinet nominees, which they don't have any influence over, and then senators getting, you know, thousands and thousands of calls, particularly on Betsy DeVos for education, but on others as well. Um, do you think, based on your guide and based on your experiences, the calls versus the town halls can be more effective? Do they work in tandem? And which do you think is, has kind of better served people who are trying to oppose in this way so far? So we get asked this question a lot. Um, I think we would say in-person, face-to-face meetings, whether that's in a district office, at a town hall, at another type of public event, um, that's the best way that you can get your member of Congress's attention and begin to change that narrative that's being written about them in their districts. Um, you know, members of Congress ultimately want a story about how they are listening and being great members of Congress for their district. And I think our people have been successful at starting to shift that narrative, that we've said it's going to take more than that. I would say the, the next probably most effective tactic that people can use are, are the mass calls. Um, and then emails and, and letters, letters yeah. things like that, close after that. Yeah, I think the closer you can get to, to a member, the better. Um, they, you know, some, it's actually pretty incredible how creative some of these members um, have become in trying to avoid their own constituents. Um, and so that's why if you get a moment where you're face to face with a member, either in, a, in an office uh, meeting or at a town hall, uh, or if you just, you know, find them on the street and you manage to get a good 30 second clip of you asking them a good question, that is an effective way of getting their attention. And, um, you know, having worked on the Hill, you know, we would get calls and, and definitely people should continue calling because uh, it does make a difference. I remember tallying the number of calls on an issue and then letting you know, other staff members know. Um, but it's really those moments when you can get in front of a member of Congress and to ask them one of those questions and push them on an issue that really gets to them. So you talked a little bit at the beginning about your experience with Congressman Doggett and, and the early town halls that he faced. A um, little bit of a different situation for Congressman Gutierrez, but do you, looking back, did Democrats misread what was happening or did they take way too long to respond to what was happening in 2009 and 2010 and do you see any parallels to that on the other side today? I think it was very fast in 2009. Um, it, you know, you really only started to hear about these folks calling themselves the Tea Party around tax day and by August recess or yeah. the district work period, it was, it was a full-blown national movement. Um, I, I can really only speak from my own experience. I think we took it very seriously from the beginning. Luckily, Congressman Doggett represents a place like Austin, um, and he was able to really stand firm on the values that he believed in. But you know, a lot of members were not as lucky, and that's what led to the eventual, you know, eventual Republican takeover of the, of the House in 2010. Um, but it was it was very fast, and I think. There are probably some Republicans in Congress right now who are shocked in a similar way, um, just like Democrats were back then. Yeah, um, my, my boss, Congressman Gutierrez, also, I, mean, he, I remember he got a, a big um, portrait. It was his portrait that had a big red X that got delivered to, to his office. Um, so it, and it was really surprising to us because we're like, this is Chicago and super, super blue area and we're getting these kinds of things from these groups. Um, so we did take it seriously. Um, I, I think the difference today versus 2009 though is that 
Democrats really weren't prepared for this. And the August recess was a, was a big moment uh, for the Tea Party groups, um, just like this week is. This is like the first opportunity for these groups to go and confront their members of Congress at town halls. But the, the Republicans are ready this time. They know they're coming. They have their talking points ready. They're doing things to avoid the town halls. Um, so they're trying to, 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 to make themselves scarce, uh, which is, it's a, you know, it's a big deal. Um, um, that's why so many groups have been, found creative ways of doing like constituent town halls, um, where they're holding these town halls even in the absence of their member. Yeah, that's what, so I wanted to ask specifically about this week because this was, you know, as you said, it's the first moment when uh, there was sort of a break in Congress. Everyone was home in their districts. Um, not very many Republicans holding town halls. Um, I was at two earlier this week, Scott Taylor in Virginia Beach and then Dave Bratt last night okay. um, in the southern portion of his district. Um, you know, spirited, um, interesting discussions, a lot around the Affordable Care Act, a lot around um, investigations into Russia. I think we've seen, you know, even before this week, similar things in, in the other town halls play out. Do, do you feel like this, uh, you know, as you described it, as kind of a big moment for this movement, has it been effective this week? Has it, has it you know, made, uh, you know, the strides that you think it needed to with all the members of Congress home and facing their constituents? Yeah, I, I think it, it definitely has been. Given what we've seen, uh, the videos that we've seen, the stories that we've heard, um, so far these, these groups have been really effective getting uh, to, to the members. And again, the fact that members of Congress are not holding town halls or having these teletown halls, uh, I think is a sign of how effective these kinds of actions have been. Um, when, a, when, a, when we have 200 fewer um, town halls, Republican town halls, than we had two years ago, that's because they're scared. And they're scared of their constituents uh, because because it's making a difference. Do you wish you could have held teletown halls back in August of uh, 2009? Would that have been an easy we, way to avoid did, some of these did, moments? We did hold a few <laughs> telephone town halls. And, and I will say, you know, they serve a purpose. Um, but when members are going home during these district work periods, it really means that they should be working in their district, meeting with the people who sent them to Washington. Um, you know, the, the fact is that if you hold a telephone town hall, the questions are screened beforehand. Folks do not have a chance to ask follow-ups. Um, and you can, you can very much shift that call in your favor. Um, it's not a real representation of the opinions in your district. I was reading over your guide again this morning, and, and something jumped out at me. Um, it was in the, the section where you went over uh, the history of the Tea Party. And um, we, we all know that the, the Tea Party helped shuffle in the majority in the House in, in 2010. Um, but that in, it sort of morphed. And you know, in a couple of cases, um, there were Senate candidates who primaried uh, sitting senators, and then the Republicans weren't able to hold on to those seats because they couldn't win statewide because they had very conservative Tea Party candidates. Obviously, a lot of uh, Republicans lost to Tea Party primary challengers. And you guys wrote that Tea Partiers treated, quote, weak Republicans as traitors. So as progressives, you know, sort of form this opposition, should Democrats who want to work with Republicans in Congress and President Trump be viewed as traitors by these grassroots organizations? And do you think that this should or will morph into primary challenges where you have more progressive candidates going after some of these, you know, more moderate Democrats? So I think that we've been very clear from the beginning that uh, we are going to pressure our Democrats to stand firm for our values, and that means not voting to approve, uh, you know, cabinet nominations. Um, I know that people like Dianne Feinstein have gotten a lot of attention from Democrats in her district for, so far, seemingly rubber stamping President Trump's agenda. And I think that they need to stand up and be more firm because there's a lot at stake. Um, whether it turns into candidates and challenges. I don't think that we're in a position right now to um, to say that's where we're headed. I think we would leave those decisions up to these local groups on the ground. Uh, they're in a, a much better position to decide who should represent them in Congress. Yeah, I mean, the, this idea of, of calling someone a traitor, I think that's sort of, that's the, that's the Tea Party kind of frame, right? I mean, the kind of nasty behavior that we saw in 2009, 2010. Uh, where these Tea Party groups were, were, were violent and aggressive and spitting on people in certain cases. That's not what we're about at all. I mean, we are very clear about how we follow progressive, nonviolent, respectful kinds of actions. 
Um, so I don't think that's the kind of messaging that we would ever use. Um, but, um, but yeah, we want to make sure that Democrats are working not for, um, for, for Republicans or for, for Trump, but for their constituents back at home. Um, that, that should be their first priority. And if they're getting uh, the message loud and clear from constituents that they want them to be more progressive, then that's what they need to focus on, not on getting, not with cooperating with Donald Trump. And then on the other side of things, um, I, I was in Baltimore with the House Democrats at their um, annual issues conference um, a couple of weeks ago, and that you know this grassroots movement and everything that we've seen from the protests to the to the marches to the town halls was a huge topic of conversation among the members. Uh, everyone trying to figure out sort of how they can climb on board, how they can use the momentum and the energy, you know, to to propel themselves back into the majority and also you know, to put a stop to some of the things that Republicans are trying to do in Congress. Um, how have Democrats done at jumping on board the grassroots movement? And do you think that there's anything specifically that lawmakers should be doing other than just, you know, talking to their constituents, holding town halls? What should Democrats be doing to try and push this even further? So I think if, if some of these uh, representatives really want to take advantage of this energy, all they have to do is be progressive. All they have to do is ha like real progressive uh, and and they'll, and they'll get some of the, the positive response that we've been saying. Um, um, we've been already seeing that. I mean, I know that some c certain members of Congress have referenced Indivisible, and uh, it's great, right? But, I mean, what really matters is how they're voting and whether or not they're actually sticking to those values. And, you know, we've heard a lot of our, our Indivisible groups, particularly in blue states, really call for their members to speak out loudly. We talk a lot about that in the guide. Um, it, it's great to oppose Donald Trump's agenda, but quiet opposition doesn't do us as much good as bold opposition. Um, so it's about making statements and, and saying why these moves are wrong. Um, and I, I really would hope that as we move further into this session, that we'll see more Democrats willing to do that. When you talk about you know holding firm and, and opposing Donald Trump's agenda and House Republicans' agenda and all of that. Um, one of the things that I remember hearing from Democrats throughout the Obama administration was that the total opposition from Republicans really sort of, you know, threw government off, made it very difficult to govern, made it very difficult for the federal government to do its job. Doesn't the same hold true if there's total opposition? I mean, we've seen early on from the cabinet, Donald, you know, a lot of Donald Trump's cabinet isn't in place yet six weeks into his administration, aren't, isn't it a problem if Democrats are grinding the gears of government to a halt in their opposition the way a lot of Democrats were frustrated that Republicans did? So it's, it's a great question and, you know, we're not trying to obstruct for the sake of obstruction. It's really to obstruct to protect our values. Um, you know, we consider the delay in Donald Trump's nominations a big win. Um, because I think there are some very dangerous people that were, that were put up for these positions. The longer that we could delay them, I think, uh, the better. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's a good question. We, we believe so firmly um, that what President Trump is trying to do on many fronts is, is so wrong that we think the best answer is to slow it as much as possible or to stop it completely. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's not, you know, when, if slowing down a nomination means that um, we're going to delay some of these bad, these bad administrative policies from DHS or, you know, some of these other agencies, then that, that's okay. I mean, our priority, I think, is to protect all of those folks that are at risk. Um, and everyone's at risk under this president. Um, it's, it, it's, it's about, um, you know, making sure that we don't, we don't sit on the sidelines when we know that the outcome is harm for some of these people. Right, so we're uh, a little short on time, but I did, there's one question that, that I think is sort of really important for the direction of where this goes is I, a lot of Republicans that I've talked to have said, yeah, people are agitated now. They're upset about the, the election result, and that's forcing a lot of this. They expect that by this November, let alone by next November, when, when House members and some senators are up for re-election, that this is going to sort of burn out and that it's going to fizzle. Um, do you think that this energy is going to last and what, what needs to happen in order for these people who have really haven't been engaged politically before to stay politically engaged for 20 months before the next midterms? 
I think the group model that we've developed is going to be helpful in that. So we talk a lot about how this is not a sprint, it's not even a marathon, it's really more like a relay race. Um, and when you have these groups on the ground who are now growing into the thousands of members, um, you can really spread out some of the work that has to be done. Um, but I think the energy will last. It's not just about Donald Trump. We've seen one of the most common themes at these town halls are uh, you know, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And I think that's a, a theme that's going to continue. People are more involved in what their members of Congress are doing. They're looking more closely. And I think this idea of accountability is something that can last until next November. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's definitely a, a concern about whether the energy lasts. And it's, you know, people have jobs. They, there's a lot of white noise in their lives. And so there's always a risk of, you know, there are other things that, that start taking their parties. But um, as Sarah was saying, this isn't, people aren't out at these town halls. They're not um, going to district office because they're upset about, you know, Clinton not being the president. They're upset because of the things that the Trump and Republicans are trying to, trying to do. So as long as we're getting these kinds of policies, he's like, repeal ICA, these uh, anti-Muslim, anti-refugee uh, executive orders, we're going to see this kind of energy, right? Uh, and so as long as that's what we, that we're getting from this president, we're going to get that response. I think it's also about prioritizing the, the work that we're doing and the policies that we're, um, you know, really standing up against. Um, there's going to be a lot that happens in this Congress, and we will lose some of these fights, but we have to work really hard on the wins that we can get. And there are certain policies that are that are more important than others. Do you think, real quick, um, do you think that the the local activists and people at the grassroots level who haven't done this before understand what you say when you when you say we're going to lose some of these fights? Because that seems to me like one of the would be the biggest concern is that people become dispirited. They feel like they don't see any victories, which obviously no majority in either chamber of Congress and without the White House, Republicans. You know, there's very little Democrats can do beyond slowing things down to block some of these key priorities. Do you worry that people who don't understand that might struggle with the notion that there are going to be some wins for Republicans, there are going to be some losses for Democrats? Realize that and see it um, and start to shoot for the bigger wins. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we've already seen some wins in the fact that, um, you know, the ACA hasn't been repealed. It's because, partly because of all the momentum behind uh, some, of, some of this movement. Um, it's about making sure that people understand that those are wins and they should treat them as wins. Um, but then also recognizing when there are those big losses. We, I think we sent out a letter immediately after the, the Jeff Sessions um, when he was confirmed. We sent a note to the group saying, hey, look, this Jeff Sessions just got confirmed. We lost this. Um, but this is, this is uh, a long-term fight um, and we're going to keep fighting on the issues as they come. This isn't over. It's important, important to communicate that to the groups. Finally, Chris Beach talks with Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox of North Carolina about school choice and new education secretary Betsy DeVos. Welcome to the Real Clear Politics podcast. Today we are delighted to be joined by Congresswoman Virginia Fox. She's the Congresswoman for North Carolina's 5th District, and she's also the chairwoman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce, a vitally important position for the future of education policy in the United States. Congresswoman, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you very much. Well, I'm supposed to start by asking you some tough questions about education policy in the United States, but I have to say I was studying up on your biography, and I just have to go over a few things, if you don't mind, that I think our audience will find very interesting and moving. Uh, I, I was reading here that you grew up in rural Avery County, North Carolina, part of Appalachia, and that you grew up in a poor family and that you didn't have power or running water in your home until you were 14 years of age and that you started working at age 12 as a weaver to help support your family and that you were a janitor working your way through high school and became the first in your family to graduate from high school. Is all that true? That is all true. Wow. That is a remarkable story. How has that shaped your perspective on education issues and labor? Well, that, you know, how we grow up, uh, how we develop, I think, does have a lot to do with our attitude toward policy and the experiences that you have in life. Uh, I learned early in life that um, you could work hard and succeed, 
you needed a good education to go along with the hard work. And with those, with that combination, um, you know, I've been very blessed. My goal in life is to protect the opportunity for everybody else in this country to have that same uh, opportunity. I want to protect the ability in this country for anybody who grew up like I did to succeed. And frankly, you don't see the kind of poverty that I grew up with uh, in the 1950s. It it was true. I mean, most people around me grew up a a lot like I did. Some, some families had more than others. Uh, They were a little more fortunate, but I was as disadvantaged as anyone you will ever know. And when I speak to young people nowadays, I tell them, you, you, uh, you'll never know anybody as poor as I was. But it didn't stop me from having the ability to succeed, and that's what this country is all about. Well, that's great. Let's talk about education and that opportunity you were talking about. There's been a lot of attention paid to rural parts of America that have been flying under the radar for a long time now. Uh, But with the election of Donald Trump, there's been renewed attention to that. You look at some of these areas uh, in Appalachia, Uh, North Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, some of these areas. How does education fit in that in lifting up some of these low-income students into the middle or upper class? And what are are the solutions for those areas? Well, making sure that people get a good basic education, K through 12, is really critical um, in terms of helping them build the base for going on and doing other things. Uh, those areas of the country, again, have always been poor. It hasn't been necessarily the um, infrastructure that existed. You know, we didn't have very wonderful schools to go into. Uh, We had adequate facilities, but not, you know, extravagant facilities. But it was really the quality of the instruction that made a difference and also the expectations of us. I mean, my parents, even though my mother had a sixth grade education, my father a ninth grade, they expected their children to do well in school, and they understood the importance of getting a good education. So we need parental, high parental expectations for their children, and we need high goals. And then we need excellent teachers and excellent principals there to provide the tools that the students need to gain the skills that they have. Obviously, we want um, great access to technology. You know, with the technology we have now, students should be able to get any kind of program they want on the Internet, work through computers. And so those things are important. You need a certain amount of money for the technology. But again, that's not all that expensive. So much has to do with the attitude that people have toward what students can do. Right. And and those things that you were highlighting right there seem to mostly be areas of, of states and local and district control and then down to the family level. What do you see cool. as your role in the federal government as the chairwoman of the House Committee on Education and Workforce? What do you see as the federal government's role? Because that's a very big debate right now particularly with Betsy DeVos coming as the new Secretary of Education. What do you see as the federal role in education policy today? Well, I, um, I, I see the federal role in education policy as uh, being as minimal as possible. What we need to do is to get the federal government out of the way so that the local units can do what they need to do to help our students. You know, one size fits all is not what we need out of Washington, D.C. We need the federal government to step back and say, you know, we there's minimal money coming in from the federal government. Only about 7% of the funding for local units comes from mm-hmm. the federal government, and yet the federal government provides about 90% of the rules and regulations. And again, it's generally a one-size-fits-all. So we need to stop that practice. It would actually be a lot better for the local school districts 
I think if the federal government weren't involved and all that money being spent on bureaucrats were allowed to be was allowed to be left at the local level for them to spend, it w- we would be so much better off. So I want to diminish the role of the federal government in elementary and secondary education. Uh, so I think that's what we should be doing. We need to roll back the uh, rules from the Obama administration. The Obama administration wanted to control everything in Washington and did a pretty good job of it for eight <laughs> years. We're in the process of rolling back many of those rules and regulations. For example, they wanted to control teacher preparation right. from Washington. That's totally unnecessary. At the higher education uh, level, they wanted to redefine what a credit hour was. I mean, we've had higher education in this country since the 1600s, and the credit hour is very well defined before the Obama administration came in. We didn't need that kind of interference. Now, one one thing your Repub- some of your Republican colleagues have been involved in is pushing forward a bill to abolish the Department of Education. Actually, uh, Congressman Massey has a one-page bill for that. Is is that something that you think is feasible? I mean, Ronald Reagan campaigned on it back in the 80s and tried to do it, and he couldn't. Is that something that's politically feasible, or where where is that going? I do not think it's politically feasible. Again, if I if the Lord put me in charge, I would do it, hmm. but I'm not in charge, and I don't believe it's feasible to do, and I think we will, pardon me, waste our time trying to do that. However, there are things we can do, as I said. We can diminish the role of the, of the Department of Education, push decision-making to the local level. We also can demand accountability for programs that exist that are funded from the federal level to make sure the money that comes to the federal government from hardworking taxpayers is spent as well as it can be spent. So I am not going to to hold hearings on abolishing the Department of Higher Education because I don't think we have the votes for that. But am I going to do everything to diminish the role and to make what's the limited role it has effective and efficient? Yes. I think that's a better use of our time. Okay. Let me ask you just to play devil's advocate for a little bit. One issue that's in the news right now in terms of the federal role is President Obama's Title IX transgender bathroom guidelines. Um, His supporters point this out as a prominent example of where the federal government should intervene to protect transgender students in uh, in public schools uh, around the country. Uh, the Trump administration has hinted that they're going to rewrite the laws. We don't know what that's going to look like. What would be your response to their criticism that, you know, we need some of these protections in place from the federal government? Well, I never want to see anybody mistreated uh, on any kind of basis, uh, religion, gender, um, uh, national origin, I, I, I abhor any kind of discrimination or mistreatment of anyone. So let me say that to, to begin with. Okay. However, what the Obama administration did was circumvent rulemaking and interpret into the law uh, something that was never intended, I believe. I don't believe that Title IX ever was intended to apply to transgender students. And so by writing memos and um, sending out dear colleague letters, the Obama administration violated all the rules and regulations related to rulemaking. And so I think whatever we can do to roll back those uh, ill-conceived memos and dear colleagues, we should do. So if the Trump administration wishes to do that and say we are not going to continue uh, on the path that the Obama administration had set, and I think it's going in the right direction. Um, We need to follow the rules. And if we want to change the rules, as far as the federal government's concerned, we need to go by legislation. One of the things the Obama administration did over and over and over again was to try to legislate. That is not the executive branch's role. Uh, 
I point out all the time to people, Article 1 means something. Article 1 gave all legislative powers to the Congress of the United States. Article 2 about the executive branch gives very limited powers to the executive branch. Article 3, the judicial branch, is even shorter. We need to restore the constitutional balance of power, and and I believe that that's one of the things the Trump administration will do. Okay, and let me let me ask you another about another hot button issue in education policy right now. Obviously, school choice, which was really I think at the focus of Betsy DeVos's the battle over her confirmation. Uh, what are your thoughts on expanding school choice? Uh, that there have been reports in Politico that Trump is considering a federal school choice tax credit, the first of its kind, to expand school choice. Um, some critics on the conservative say, side say, hey, we don't want the federal government involved in that. We should do more block grants. What are your thoughts on expanding school choice? Well, again, I think uh, uh, Secretary DeVos and I, and I think the people, in the, other people in the Trump administration would agree, we want every child to have the best possible education that child can get. And it's it's really parental choice that we're talking about. In many cases, parents do not have a choice as to how to help. Parents do not have a choice to help their children uh, get the best education that they can possibly get. And so I want to see more parental choice um, because it's the parents who care the most about their children and how they will get a good education. And parents understand the value of this, just like my parents did. And we didn't have choice in terms of alternatives, but we had mm-hmm. great public schools in those days. And so I want to see every child have the best possible education. And I think that's what that we, the, the people, the liberals say that, but then they want to make everybody stay within the failed school system, and that's not right. So let's live up to the statements that we want every child to have the best possible education and make that possible. You know, if the federal government said to us, everybody has to drive a black, uh, medium-sized car, the people in this country would rebel against (laughs) that. They'd say, that's not fair. We want choice in what kind of vehicle we drive. And yet we deny that opportunity to so many children in our country because we don't provide all the options out there for them. And I think we need to do that. Well, I sat through uh, Betsy DeVos's confirmation hearing, and I heard her make a very similar eloquent defense of of school choice. And then here's what a lot of her— uh, a lot of her Democratic critics uh, sitting there in the Senate would say they would say, well, whenever we seem to return power to the states, sometimes states go off and do things that aren't in the best interest or don't turn out as well as they should have. And so some of these Democratic senators were saying, well, look, we can't give all the power back to the states because we don't know what they'll do with it. And what happens if they don't live up to expectations? Do you think that there's some federal role there in oversight, in accountability, uh, how do we keep standards high, I think, is, is the question. Well, I always go back to the Constitution, and I say, read the Constitution, find for me the word education, and find for me that the founders said education is the, a function of the federal government. The, the founders, I think, were very clear, and they put an exclamation mark on it in the Tenth Amendment. If we didn't spell it out in the Constitution for the federal government to do, then it's up to the states and the people. And education is not mentioned in the Constitution anywhere. So I believe people have taken into the federal government a role in education that is not appropriate according to the Constitution. Mm. When the federal government tries to do too much, it generally fails, and that's what's happening right now. Federal government has been overextended, and we can't do the the kinds of things. We need to leave these things, the uh, health care and education at the, at the state level and local level. The people of this country are pretty darn intelligent, 
and they can hold their state legislators accountable. They can hold their local school boards accountable, their county commissioners accountable. People in Congress think they're the only ones who can hold um, local educators accountable. That's foolish. That's a hubris that uh, we ought not to have. So the people can handle this. You know, the Constitution, again, starts out with we the people. And it's the people who gave the authority to the federal government. It's not the federal government who gives authority to the people or to the states. Um, it's it's backwards right now. So uh, there can be there should be accountability. There needs to be more transparency. Right. I agree with that, and I push transparency and accountability all the time. But it doesn't all have to be at the federal level. In fact, I'll bring up an example. The federal government over the last, um, since 1965, has spent over $3 trillion on Title I. Title I is a program that came about in 1965 in the War on Poverty, and it was supposed to improve reading levels for low-income children. The reading levels have not changed one bit since 1965 after our having spent $3 trillion. Something is wrong with this scenario. What is it? Why has there not been accountability? Why haven't we gotten results for $3 trillion of hardworking taxpayer dollars? I contend the states and the localities can do a lot better, and if they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, guess what? The people will hold them Mm -hmm. accountable. Business and industry votes with its feet. Business and industry will go into the states and local uh, places where they know students are getting a good education and where adults can get the kind of skill education that they need. We're, We're failing at the federal level. We're just utterly failing. We're talking with Congressman Virginia Fox, Congresswoman for North Carolina's 5th District and Chairman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. Congresswoman, do you have time for one more question? Uh, I I know I I want to be respectful of your time here. I do. Okay, great. Uh, You are president of Mayland Community College, and so I have to ask you about the state of higher education briefly and what you see as the Republican agenda for helping fix things uh, like the accreditation problems you were referring to earlier, credit hours, student loan debt. Uh, the gap between a college degree and employment. Uh, what's your vision for the Republican agenda when it comes to higher education? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry. That, yeah, that was a loaded question. That's okay. That's all right. Again, I wish I had a magic bullet to solve all of those problems. It is obvious, again, that there are major problems in those areas. I have, uh, because of my background, not just my background as an, uh, someone who worked in higher education, Uh, before I got into elected office, but also my background from a personal point of view. You know, I have a a brother who went to college and a brother and a sister who didn't go to college. Uh, And so I'm I'm very sensitive to uh, all of the areas related to the workforce. Um, What we want to do is make sure that, again, people have choices and that we do everything we can to elevate the status of people who choose not to get a four-year degree. Uh, Many people, by the way, only 55% of the people who enter a four-year college now graduate within six years. That's right. So even calling it a four-year degree doesn't mean anything anymore. But my goal is to help students get into programs, whether they be industry certification programs or uh, two-year college degrees or four-year college degrees where they get the skills to lead a successful, productive life. I think for too long we have not given credit to people who go into programs that are not as long as a four- or six-year college degree. And, again, I've seen it from my own family. So my goal is to work in that area. I had a chance three years ago to rework um, the Workforce Investment Act. We called it the Skills Act. 
because we know the emphasis needs to be on skills. Right. We know that most students graduating from high school now need um, education beyond the high school level in order to succeed. Technical skills are so important. I would like to see more high schools do programs within the high schools for students who might not want to go on again to uh, a six-year degree. Let's mm-hmm. just call it a six-year degree. <laughs> um, we need to do more of that. Students need okay. to be having dual credits. Again, that's not something the federal government needs to be doing. The states can do it. And the, the college debt issue has been blown out of proportion. Very few students graduate with large debts. The the average student loan debt is about $27,000, which is very manageable. But many students graduate from a four-year school without any debt. And what we need to do is make sure students and parents understand the cost of a degree and what are the potential earnings from the degree. It's okay if people go to professional schools, for example. If you want to be a doctor and you have to take on a large amount of debt, you're probably going to be okay because you'll have a profession you can pay back that money. I hope so. If you're you're a good doctor. Yeah. yeah, If you're going to major in psychology and not go on to graduate school uh, or major in some other programs that are kind of marginal when it comes to income, Students need to be aware of that, and parents need to be aware of that. They may still choose to do that, and I believe, again, in in choice in higher education, but they need to be aware of the choices they're making uh, when they they do that. You know, I'm an English major. I I majored in English. (laughs) I I wanted to be a high school English teacher, but I was too poor to stop work and do student teaching. So... Some people would think I have a a useless degree in terms of English, but, you know, it was a wonderful degree. It gave me background to do a lot of things, Uh, but I took typing in high school. If I hadn't had typing in high school and was able to make a living, uh, you know, I, I would have had a hard time. So the combination of the two have been very helpful to me. So I want to preserve choice, but I want students and parents have their eyes wide open and all the facts in front of them when they make the decisions about what to do with their futures. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. You're a fountain of information here, and I wish we had more time. We're speaking with Congresswoman Virginia Fox. Let's do it again. We will. Thank you so much. That was Congresswoman Virginia Fox, Congresswoman from North Carolina's 5th District and Chairwoman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.